You're listening to the History of Ancient Greece. I'm Kate Armstrong, and my podcast, The Explores, is all about time traveling back through history to find out what life was like for ladies of the past. I love learning about women in history, but so often I feel like I'm appreciating them in a cultural vacuum. What kind of underwear was Elizabeth I dealing with when she dominated that English throne? Was Cleopatra really wearing all that cat eye makeup? Did the 19th century hoop skirt trap women, or did it actually liberate them? Each season, we dive into a certain time and place and explore what life was like there for women. We walk with everyday ladies and re-examine stories we think we already know, immersing ourselves in their lived experience. In season two, we've already traveled through ancient Egypt, and now we're right in the middle of ancient Greece. So check it out on my website, theexplorespodcast.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. As soon as you're done listening to this one, take it away, Ryan. Hello, I'm Ryan Stitt, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 99, Frustrations and Poor Decisions. The years that followed the Battle of Mantinea were marked by internal conflict in Athens and chaos in the Peloponnese. In Athens, in the spring of 417 BC, the election for the generalship underscored the division and confusion that continued to govern Athenian foreign policy. Both Alcibiades and Nicias had sufficient support to be elected as two of the ten strategoi, as they would also the next year, but their policies couldn't have been any more different. They could not agree on any consistent policy, and the attempts of Athens' two major leaders to pursue different policies led to only failure and deadlock. Alcibiades, as we will see, still supported his democratic friends at Argos, but without Ellis and Mantinea in the alliance anymore, there was no hope of resuming an active Peloponnesian campaign. On the other hand, Nicias's policy was for the Athenians to turn away from the Peloponnese and to focus their attention on recovering the Halkidian and Thracian regions. As we have discussed numerous times, the northeast was crucial to Athens as a source for metals and timber. At the same time, Athens' on-again, off-again relationship with Perdiccas was on life support. Following the Battle of Mantinea, Perdiccas had seen where the wind was blowing, and so he pledged allegiance to the Spartans. At that point, although he didn't end his alliance with the Athenians, his hand would be forced the following year. In May of 417 BC, when Nicias was making preparations for a campaign against the Halkidians and Amphipolitans, Perdiccas refused to help them, and so without their help, the Athenians were forced to abandon their campaign. Needless to say, they were not happy about this. Later that summer, the people of Deum on the Athos promontory of the Halkidiki revolted from the Athenians and joined the Halkidian League. Athenian anger towards Perdiccas sizzled hotter and hotter over the summer. Ultimately, due to his unwillingness to assist them in the northeast, 
The Athenians declared Perdiccas as an enemy over the winter of 417-416 BC and imposed a naval blockade on the Macedonian coastline. Back in the Peloponnese, the Corinthians commenced hostilities with the Athenians for private quarrels of their own, but the rest of the Peloponnesians stayed quiet. Over the summer of 417 BC, the Spartans settled affairs in Achaea in a way that was more agreeable to their interests. However, the pro-Spartan oligarchy at Argos that they had helped to establish the previous winter did not last long, as the Argive oligarchs ruled cruelly. Diodorus Siculus writes, quote, Taking hold of those accustomed to be popular leaders, the oligarchs put them to death. Then, by terrorizing the other Argives, they destroyed the laws and began to take public affairs onto themselves, end quote. As a result, their oppressive behavior hastened their demise, and there was a counter-revolution in Argos, in which the Argive Democrats regained power. The coup unfolded in August of 417 BC, during Sparta's annual celebration of the Gymnopaediae, a festival in which naked youths displayed their athletic and martial skills through the medium of war dancing. After a fight broke out in the streets of Argos, victory was declared for the popular party, who then killed or exiled many of their oligarchic opponents and re-established a democratic government. Once the Spartans received word of the uprising, they immediately postponed the Gymnopadiae and sent an army to their allies' assistance. But once they reached Tegea, they learned of their defeat. The surviving oligarchs appealed frantically to Sparta for assistance in reclaiming their city, but the Spartans instead chose to return home and celebrate at their festivities once again. Meanwhile, the democratic Argives set about restoring their alliance with the Athenians, and both states ultimately concluded a 50-years peace treaty the following spring. But before this happened, according to Plutarch, on Alcibiades' advice and with the help of the Elians, the Argives began to build long walls connecting Argos to the sea, so that in the case of a Spartan siege, the Athenian navy would be able to protect its sea lines of communication and provide it with the necessary supplies. All of the Argives threw themselves into this project, even the women and slaves, and carpenters and masons came to them from Athens. This alarmed the Spartans, so over the winter of 417-416 BC, Aegis led a Peloponnesian army, minus the Corinthians, into the Argolid. They had received intelligence that they could easily retake the city. Although this proved to be false, and they failed to take the city, they did manage to destroy the defensive long walls that were still being built. The Spartans also captured the Argive town of Hisiae, killing all of its male citizens. Such atrocities were becoming so common in this war that Thucydides didn't even feel the need to comment on him. With Hisiae destroyed, the Spartans then took the city of Ornei, fortified it, and settled some of the oligarchic Argive exiles there. They returned home after leaving behind a garrison, which was intended to harass the Argolis so that it would make it easier for the oligarchic exiles eventually to take back the democratically controlled city of Argos. In response, with the official renewal of the Athenian-Argive alliance in the spring of 416 BC, Alcibiades convinced the Athenians to send a fleet to Argos in order to recover Ornei and purge the Argolid of any pro-Spartan elements. And so, Athens dispatched a force of 40 triremes and 1,200 hoplites to aid Argos in removing the garrison and taking back the city. 
The joint Athenian Argive army then took Ornei by storm, expelled the garrison, and executed some of the oligarchic exiles. The rest were driven out from the city. In particular, 300 suspected Spartan sympathizers were removed and scattered among the Aegean islands. The Argive Democrats also attacked the territory of Phileas, where most of the oligarchic exiles had settled. They did this to punish the people of Phileas for harboring them, but they also wished to drive the oligarchs permanently out of the Argolis in order to prevent any future counter-revolutions. Later that year, the Spartans intended to respond by invading Argive territory once again, but when Aegis and his army arrived at the frontier, they found the sacrifices for crossing unfavorable, and so they turned around. This attempt made the Argives suspicious of some of their fellow citizens in the city, so they arrested even more suspects, while others managed to escape into exile before they could be caught. As a result, the Argives invaded the territory of Phileas once again, but they were ambushed by the Phileasians and their oligarchic exiles, and in the process, they lost 80 men. Despite Argos becoming democratic again, it is doubtful whether this caused much consternation in Sparta, because for all intents and purposes, the Argives had been weakened, and they were no longer a serious challenger to Sparta for the hegemony of the Peloponnese. The only thorn in Sparta's side now was the continued occupation of Pylos by the Athenians, whose garrison once again was raiding Messenia and were seizing large quantities of booty from Spartan territory. However, in 416 BC, the time was not yet ripe for the Spartans to react to this provocation and thus renounce the peace of Nicias. Back at Athens, tensions ran high over 417 and 416 BC among the various factional leaders, once again over the city's foreign policy agenda. An ostracism might have decided the rivalry of the Warhawk Alcibiades and the Peace of Nicias, as it would have given the Athenians the opportunity to vote on the policies and leadership of one or the other and thus break the impasse. As we discussed in episode 27, Ostracism was something that had to be voted on, whether it was going to be held for that year, and it hadn't been used as a political weapon since before the war, as nobody was confident enough to risk their own exile if it went against them. And that held true here, as both Nicias and Alcibiades had about equal support, and neither was willing to gamble on the tactic. But a third man, a demagogue named Hyperbolus, had nothing to lose. He was a politician from the business class, like Cleon. Some ancient sources claim that he was from a slave family, but the fact that his father, Antiphanes, had a Greek name makes this unlikely, so this was very likely political slander, as he was a frequent target of the authors of old comedy. No doubt, though, he was not of an aristocratic family. He appears to have been an effective speaker who shared Cleon's imperialistic policies, but otherwise, little is known of him besides what we see in the plays of Aristophanes. In the piece, in particular, he is spoken of as a man who rules the ecclesia. He was a triarch, meaning he was a captain of a trireme, and so he was a man of at least some wealth, and he actively moved and amended decrees. So he may have been both a member of the boule and a strategos. Aristophanes, though, treats Hyperbolus as a ridiculous and unworthy scoundrel beneath even the other demagogues. 
although he is likely exaggerating when he attributes imperial aims to him that reached as far as Carthage, there is little doubt that he resisted the peace of Nicias and the alliance with Sparta that followed it. However, he had neither the military reputation that Cleon was able to achieve, nor the personal stature and influence of that of the rich and pious Nicias. Following the death of Cleon, he might have emerged as the leader of the war faction had it not been for Alcibiades. According to Plutarch, Hyperbolus had hoped that if one of the other men would be exiled, he would become the rival of the one who remained, though he may have sought more than just his own advantage in the belief that ostracism would finally bring Athens a consistent foreign policy. Whatever his motives, in March of 416 BC, he was able to persuade the Athenians to hold an ostracism later that year. Once this decision was made, Alcibiades and Nicias, or Phaeax according to some sources, seemed to have panicked, and instead of going after each other, they mobilized their supporters to turn on Hyperbolus. As a result, Hyperbolus, not Alcibiades or Nicias, was ostracized, and he would die five years later while still in exile. The Athenians ultimately were upset by how Alcibiades and Nicias conspired for this to have happened. That's because they believed that the political act of an ostracism was supposed to be something of an honor, and Plutarch makes it clear that Hyperbolus was unworthy. A contemporary comic poet apparently quipped, quote, The man, indeed, deserved the fate, but not the fate the man. End quote. It's not sure whether they were upset with the outcome stemmed from Hyperbolus's political insignificance or his social origins, as all of those who had been ostracized in Athenian history before had come from aristocratic families. And so the ostracism of Hyperbolus revealed a fatal weakness in the institution. It could allow the people to give a majority to choose between two leaders or two policies, but it was useless where there were multiple options or no majority was given. Perhaps the general realization of this flaw explains why they never again held an ostracism, and so this was the last time ever in their history that it was employed. The Athenians, instead of ostracism, began to utilize the graphe paranomon, or indictment for illegal proposals, to punish politicians who brought forward legal motions in conflict with existing laws. This procedure, though, was often used for political reasons, too which is unsurprising, since without a written constitution or bill of rights, only a highly subjective interpretation determined what new laws were and were not in accordance with the old. In retrospect, Athens may have benefited greatly if either Alcibiades or Nicias was ostracized, as it would have allowed the people to vote decisively for the different foreign policy that each man espoused. Instead, they once again were without a consistent, clear policy. And if you don't have a consistent, clear policy, then you have no policy at all. And not long afterwards, the Athenian people once again elected both of them as strategoi, reflecting the continued stalemate in Athenian politics. The rivalry between Nicias and Alcibiades brought new sophistication and techniques to the art of democratic campaigning, as each tried to mask their policies behind their personalities and tried to project a favorable image with vast sums of money. Although Nicias was a very reserved man, he played on his reputation of being religiously pious by funding and throwing dedications and festivals that were even more lavish to the gods. Most Athenians would have been deeply impressed with his spectacles. His aim was to convince the people that the gods would favor a city led by such a pious man. 
in a sense, he tried to set himself up as a man of the gods. On the other hand, Alcibiades was a man of the people, a social butterfly of sorts. He not only knew how to make friends with the right people and what ways were best to speak to them, but he also matched Nicias' religious piety with his own grandiose style. For example, as we discussed in episode 48, Plato's Symposium was an event held in honor of the poet Agathon on the night of his first victory at the drama competition in the city Dionysia of 416 BC. The unexpected entrance of Alcibiades, who dropped in drunkenly and nearly naked after leaving another symposium, upstaged the celebration. Later that year, at the Olympic Games of 416 BC, he entered seven teams in the chariot race, more than any private citizen had ever put forward before, and his entries placed first, second, and fourth. Alcibiades boasted that he did this not just for himself, but in order to show off Athenian power to the rest of the Greek world and show that the city wasn't worn down by the war. In doing all of this, his immediate target were the Athenian voters. He knew that he couldn't match the older Nicias's piety, so he embraced the brashness typical of the younger generation. Because of this, his reputation would reach such a point that he was arguably the most notorious man in Athens, and Plutarch provides quite a few anecdotes about Alcibiades that perhaps took place during this time. For all of his eloquence and cleverness in political statecraft, his personal life was filled with great luxuriousness, wanton drunkenness, and sexual lewdness. For example, he would strut through the agora with long purple robes, which was a symbol of royalty, and he had a golden shield made for himself that bore an image of Eros armed with a thunderbolt. Eros, as you know, was the god of love, or more precisely, passionate and physical desire. A man named Aristophon even painted an image of the river nymph Nemia with Alcibiades seated in her arms, after his chariots were also victorious at the Nemean games. Aristophanes and his frogs, years later, might best sum up how the mass of people thought of him. Quote, they yearned for him and hate him too, but then they won him back. End quote. His voluntary contributions of money to the city, his glorious ancestry, the power of his eloquence, and the vigor of his spirit made the Athenian people generally lenient and tolerant towards everything else. They consistently overlooked his transgressions, calling them the product of youthful spirits and ambition. The reputable men of the city, though, looked on him with loathing indignation and feared his contemptuous and lawless spirit. Many even began to think that he was starting to act like a tyrant. The 4th century BC Sicilian poet Archistratus even said that Hellas could not endure more than one Alcibiades. However, these extravagances won neither side a clear advantage, and unfortunately for Athens, the best that either could do was to interfere with each other's plans. In particular, Alcibiades was good at impulsive beginnings, but all of his endeavors had a way of sizzling out in the end, as his character lacked the steadiness to see anything to completion. Even so, the trouble that he caused was enough to win congratulations from the famous misanthrope Timon of Athens. This eccentric hater of his fellow citizens seized Alcibiades' hand after one meeting in the Ecclesia and told him, quote, Well done. Keep this up and you will ruin them all. End quote. 
The behavior of the Athenians in the years following the peace of Nicias revealed their pent-up frustration at the limbo state of affairs. Sparta was unwilling to carry out the terms of the peace, which dashed Nicias' hope for a sincere reconciliation between the two superpowers. And Alcibiades' scheme of defeating Sparta through a great Peloponnesian takeover now laid in shambles. At the same time, Nicias' attempt at recovering Athenian losses in Thrace and the Halkidiki had never progressed beyond the planning stage. Peace, though, did allow the Athenians to recover their financial strength, and a new generation of young men had come to maturity without the bitter experience of war or Spartan invasions. Although Athens had unmatched naval power and the financial resources, it did not use its strength and vitality to enforce the peace or to invoke another war with Sparta. But in the summer of 416 BC, a disturbing Athenian naval expedition would take place that provided the outlet for Athens' pent-up energy and frustration, which has been memorialized in some of the most frequently read pages in Thucydides. Probably at the instigation of Alcibiades, the Athenians embarked on a campaign against the tiny island of Milos, a former Dorian colony of Sparta. The Melians were the only island in the Cyclades that had stood aloof from the Athenian alliance, which allowed them to enjoy the benefits of empire, but none of its burdens. They had already stubbornly fought off one Athenian attack a decade earlier to maintain their independence. Although Athens included them on their assessment lists, they never paid and they technically remained neutral in the war, though they did supply Sparta with a small sum for the war effort, as we discussed in episode 95. Still, Milos is typically regarded by scholars to have been an innocent victim of Athenian imperialism. Thucydides explains the Athenians' reason for going after Milos in the following way. Quote, By subjugating the Melians, the Athenians hoped not only to extend their empire, but also to improve their image and thus their security. To allow the weaker Melians to remain free, according to the Athenians, would reflect negatively on Athenian power. End quote. Milos was of little strategic significance, and it is unclear what Athens had to gain from attacking it other than taking another jab at Sparta and denying them the only non-Athenian-controlled Aegean island that they could foreseeably use in the future as a resupply point for naval attacks. Despite this, the Athenians maintained the belief that all islands in the Aegean were under their domain and needed to pay tribute. It would seem, then, that another conflict with Milos was inevitable, and the Athenians decided that 416 BC was the right time likely because they were frustrated by the Spartan army in the Peloponnese and by their diplomacy in the north. And so, the frustrated, youthful Athenians were eager to demonstrate that at least on the sea, the Spartans were powerless against the Athenians by attacking one of their former colonies. As a result, 30 Athenian ships were dispatched to Milos with an army of 1,200 hoplites, 300 archers, and 20 mounted archers to force its inhabitants to enter their alliance. Their allies also sent eight ships, six Chian and two Lesbian, and 1,500 hoplites, for a total of 38 ships and 3,400 men. The participation of such a large proportion of allies suggests that they did not perceive the attack as especially unjustified either, nor are we told of any dissension among the Athenians over the decision to undertake the invasion. This expedition, though, doesn't seem to have been deemed that important 
or else Nicias or Alcibiades would have led it. Instead, the generals were Tisius and Cleomedes, two somewhat insignificant men who appear here on the historical record for the first time. When the fleet arrived at Milos and they set up camp on the island, the Athenian generals sent ambassadors to the Melian magistrates to persuade them to submit without fighting. But the Melian magistrates would not allow the Athenian ambassadors to address the people directly, presumably fearing that the masses would be more willing to submit to their demands and to yield. Instead, they arranged for them to speak before the magistrates themselves and probably an oligarch council. Thucydides reports a dialogue, famously known as the Melian Dialogue, which was a dramatization of the negotiations that took place between an unnamed Athenian ambassador and an unnamed magistrate of Milos. Thucydides did not witness their negotiations and in fact had been in exile at the time, so this dialogue paraphrases what he believed was discussed and in the tone that he believed was most appropriate for the situation. As in many of the earlier speeches, the Athenian envoy talks the language of power politics. He begins by saying that he will be frank and offers the Melians an ultimatum, either surrender and pay tribute to Athens or refuse and face annihilation. The Melian magistrate responds that Milos is a neutral city and not an enemy, and so since they are no threat to Athens, it would be immoral for them to be conquered. The Athenian envoy says that if that were true, they should just submit and be done with it, and that they do not wish to waste time arguing over the morality of the situation, because in practice, might makes right, or as the Athenian puts it, the strong do what they can, and the weak suffer what they must. Basically, in the negotiations, the Athenians offered no moral justification for their invasion, but instead bluntly told the Melians that Athens needed Melos for its own ends, and that the only thing that the Melians stood to gain in submitting was self-preservation. This speech often is taught as a case study in what we call political realism in order to illustrate the ultimately selfish and pragmatic concerns that motivate countries at war. One of the main tenets of political realism is the preface that states will act as rational actors, meaning that their actions will reflect their best interests. And this is exactly the kind of argument the Athenian ambassador puts forward here. He uses blunt language that echoes Pericles and Cleon in the past. Quote, We have done nothing amazing or contrary to human nature if we accepted an empire that was given to us and then refused to give it up. Since we were conquered by the strongest motives, honor, fear, and self-interest. And we are not the first to have acted this way, for it has always been ordained that the weaker are kept down by the stronger. End quote. The Athenian ambassador also counters that if they accept Milos's neutrality and independence, they would look weak, and their subjects would think that they left Milos alone because they were not strong enough to conquer it and so Athens must subdue Milos to keep the respect of their subjects. The Melian magistrate responds that this policy will only create more enemies for Athens, as an invasion will alarm the other neutral Greek states, who then will become hostile to Athens for fear of being invaded themselves. The Athenian ambassador counters that the Greek states on the mainland are unlikely to act this way, though it is true that the islands in the Aegean Sea would be more willing to take up arms against Athens. 
Undeterred, the Melian magistrate then points out that it would be shameful and cowardly of them to submit without a fight, to which the Athenian ambassador responds that it is only shameful to submit to an opponent whom one has a reasonable chance of defeating. And so there is no shame in submitting to an overwhelmingly superior opponent like Athens. The Melian magistrate then argues that although the Athenians are far stronger, there is still a small chance that the Melians could win, and so they will regret not trying their luck. The Athenian ambassador counters that this argument is emotional and short-sighted, because if the Melians lose, which he says is highly likely, they will come to bitterly regret their foolish optimism. He then advises the Melians to avoid clinging to hope, as it tricks men into thinking that they can achieve the unachievable, and thus it will lead them to ruin. The Melian magistrate, though, refused to yield, both because he believed that their cause was morally just, and as such, they would have the assistance of the gods, and that they hoped that their Spartan kin will come to their assistance. The Athenian ambassador counters to this by saying that the gods will not intervene because it is the natural order of things for the strong to dominate the weak. He then dismisses the threat of Spartan assistance, arguing that the Spartans are a pragmatic people who avoid risk and don't act out of sentiment or shame, but only when they hold superior power. And so, quote, it is not likely they will cross over to an island so long as we control the sea, end quote. The Athenian ambassador continues to express his shock at the Melian magistrate's lack of political realism. He reiterates that there is no shame in submitting to a stronger enemy, especially one who is offering reasonable terms. The Athenian ambassadors then withdrew from the conference. After the Melian magistrates and oligarchs discussed it for a bit, they called the Athenian ambassadors back in and told them that they have not changed their minds and will only offer friendly neutrality to the Athenians. When the Athenians declined this, the Melians politely dismissed the envoys from their city, and after they made their way back to the army and reported on what had been said, the Athenian generals immediately prepared for conflict. Then, the Athenians proceeded to besiege the main city of Milos by building a circumvallation wall. Once everything was in place, they withdrew most of their troops from the island to fight elsewhere, only leaving behind a certain number of their own citizens and of their allies to keep guard by land and sea. During the besiegement, the Melians made a number of night sorties, at one point capturing part of the Athenian circumvallation wall near their agora and killing some of the men on duty. This allowed them to bring in grain and anything else that could be useful to them. Afterwards, the Athenians took measures to keep better guard on that spot for the future. As the summer came to an end, the Melians had failed to break the siege, and as the Athenians had predicted, Spartan aid would not come. Over the winter of 416-415 BC, the Melians again attacked and successfully captured another part of the Athenian circumvallation wall, which had been feebly garrisoned. In response, the Athenian ecclesia voted to send reinforcements under the command of Philocrates, and the siege was pressed forward more vigorously. Ultimately, a combination of hunger, low morale, and treachery from the inside compelled the Melians to surrender. In fact, the expression Melian famine entered into the Greek language via Aristophanes as a metaphor for extreme starvation. As punishment for their obstinacy, the island was plundered, and what by now has become the standard atrocity occurred once again, as all men were slain and the women and children were sold as slaves. Though Xenophon in his Hellenica mentions that some of them managed to flee beforehand and escape. 
It is uncertain, though, whether the government of Athens or the Athenian generals on Milos decide at the fate of the city itself. A historical speech falsely attributed to the 4th century BC Athenian order Andocides claims that Alcibiades advocated for the enslavement of the Melian survivors in the Athenian Ecclesia. However, this account gives no date for the decree, so it could have been passed to justify the atrocities after the fact. And although Plutarch also blames Alcibiades, he was writing much later, whereas the contemporary Thucydides makes no mention of any such decree in his own account. So it's just as likely that the generals acted on their own accord. But even if this was the case, there is no evidence that they were punished when they returned back to Athens, nor that Nicias or anyone else publicly opposed or condemned their actions. So it seems that by this point, the Athenians had thoroughly abandoned the moderate imperial policy of Pericles, and chosen the harsher one that Cleon had advocated for years earlier at Mytilene. Although it was fairly common in the ancient world to treat an enemy like this, the Melians were neutral and were not Athens' enemies. As such, this massacre shocked the contemporary Greek world. The early 4th century BC Athenian rhetorician Isocrates, in his Apology for Athens' imperial conquests, explicitly mentions that the Melian massacre was a major point of criticism that many Greeks had against Athens. But he then argues that it was a necessary action and defends this by saying that the other warring states were just as brutal in their responses. Still, at the end of the war, when the Spartan army closed in on Athens, Xenophon wrote that the Athenians worried that the Spartans would treat them with the same cruelty that the Athenian army had shown the Melians. And this episode clearly left a deep impression on Thucydides, because the so-called Melian dialogue would become the only sustained dialogue between two people in his work. Afterwards, 500 Athenian colonists were sent to the island. This is evidence that by 416 BC, Athens had recovered from the devastating effects of the plague, and their trade and population was booming once again, so much so that they could afford to send out colonists to Milos. The following spring, in March of 415 BC, the playwright Euripides confronted the Athenians about the suffering of the inhabitants of a conquered city with his anguished piece, Troades, or the Trojan Women. Although Milos isn't explicitly mentioned, as the setting is the Trojan War, the play is often considered by scholars to be a commentary on the capture of the island of Milos and the subsequent slaughter and subjugation of its populace by the Athenians. But this is unlikely since Euripides was probably developing his play well before the siege of Milos even began, and he had only a month or two after its fall to make revisions. It's also unlikely that Euripides would have dared to offend his Athenian audiences, given how expensive the production was. Still, no one could seriously doubt that this exquisitely painful drama, ostensibly set in Troy in the aftermath of the city's fall, was designed to illustrate the dreadfulness of war in general, and the current war in particular. He managed to strip the mythical victors of Troy of their glory, by presenting war as an arena where bestial ambitions and man's destructive tendencies are set loose. The anticipation of the enslavement of the wives, sisters, and daughters of the Trojan heroes, and the execution of Hector's young son, Astyanax, by being thrown to his death from the city walls, was all too evocative of recent developments. Many of those sitting in the audience had themselves done the killing at Milos. It also proved to be prophetic of disasters yet to come. 
Since the beginning of the war, the Athenians had cast longing eyes on the direction of Sicily. When they finally did get involved, it was only a small-scale expedition, ostensibly for the aid of their allies on the island, who were being wronged by the Syracusans. But in order to increase Athens' power during the supposed time of peace, Alcibiades began to envision something even grander, and in his eagerness to send a large expedition to defeat Syracuse and conquer all of Sicily, he managed to fan the Athenians' desire for western conquests into a burning flame. Still, he himself had even greater aspirations, as Plutarch says that Alcibiades regarded Sicily as the ways and means to springboard his even larger war. With Sicily's agriculture and mineral wealth under Athenian control, he believed that Athens could dominate the Mediterranean, defeating even Carthage, Libya, and Italy. Thucydides starts Book 6 by going into a brief digression about the foundation story of each major Sicilian city, as we described in episode 14, because as he says, most of the Athenians were ignorant of its size and of the number of its inhabitants. However, this assertion doesn't make much sense because surely they were aware of Sicily when they voted to send an expedition there a decade prior. Regardless, Thucydides says that over the winter of 416-415 BC, on the heels of their subjugation of Milos, some Athenians were anxious for even more conquest and wished to sail once again to Sicily. The Athenian people had been weary of the aggression of Syracuse for decades now, and in particular, they were not happy that they had expelled the Leontines, Athens' old allies, from their cities just two years after the signing of the Congress of Gela, as we discussed in episode 97. So when Alcibiades began to tell his plans to the impressionable and eager young Athenian men, they at once were carried away with great hopes in Sicily. But they had to wait for the appropriate time to retaliate. As it just so happened, a second Sicilian conflict provided the invitation that Athens had sought to bring them back into Western affairs. Earlier that year in 416 BC, two neighboring cities, the non-Greek city of Segesta and the Greek city-state of Selinus, went to war over questions of marriage and disputed territory, where a river divided the lands of the quarreling cities. Diodorus Siculus provides the account of this war. He says that the Selenuntines crossed the river and seized the land. The people of Segesta at first warned them not to trespass in their territory. When they paid no attention to them, they took up arms, advanced against them, and a fierce battle ensued. The result was a decisive Selenuntine victory and the deaths of many Segestans. Since the Selenuntines were strongly supported by the protector Syracuse, the Segestans sought assistance from a much stronger ally too. So they sent embassies to Acragas and then to Carthage. When the Acragans and the Carthaginians turned them down, the Segestans were forced to look overseas to the Athenians for military help against Selenus. Diodorus and Plutarch record that some Leontines also were in the embassy sent to Athens, as their people were still living in exile, thanks to Syracuse. But it was the Segestan ambassador, as told by Thucydides, who presented their case to the Ecclesia. He appealed to the notions of traditional ties and obligations to allies, imploring the Athenians not to let the depopulation of Leontini go unpunished and their previous promises to aid Segesta to go unfulfilled. He also stressed the threat that the total domination of Sicily by Syracuse would pose to the Athenians, saying that after they achieved control of the whole island, they might send a massive force to aid their Dorian allies in the Peloponnese 
and destroying the power of Athens. Thucydides says that this delegation provided the springboard for greedy, power-hungry warmongers like Alcibiades, who saw the bringing of help to their kinsmen and allies in making a stand against Syracuse and aggression as the perfect pretext for the conquest of the whole of Sicily. This desire was made even more attractive by the Segestans' claim that they would pay for the expedition. Plutarch claims that Nicias initially was in opposition here, but he relented, since he had few men backing him out of fear of public shame in the Ecclesia. So an Athenian delegation was sent out to Sicily to check on how much money was available in their public treasury in the temples, and to discover how the war against the Selenuntines was going. That same winter, the Spartans and their allies, again without the Corinthians, marched into Argive territory, ravaged a small part of the land, took some yokes of oxen, and carried off some grain. They also attempted to settle the Argive oligarchic exiles once again at Ornei. If you recall from earlier, they had been expelled the previous winter. The Spartans then left a garrison of a few soldiers behind and returned home with the rest of the army. And once again in response, the Athenians sent 30 ships and 600 hoplites to join the Argives in taking back Ornei. After the Spartan garrison managed to escape by night, the Argives razed this city to the ground so that this cat-and-mouse game would not happen again. Then both sides returned home. Meanwhile, the Athenians also took some cavalry of their own and the Macedonian exiles that were at Athens by sea to Methone and plundered the territory of Perdiccas. In response, the Spartans sent envoys to the Halkidians to urge them to join Perdiccas in making war on Athens, but they refused. So ultimately nothing came out of it, and the Athenian forces returned back to Athens. The winter came to an end with these minor skirmishes and posturing, but back in Athens, excitement was in the air that something big and adventurous could happen in the upcoming campaigning season. At about the same time as the city Dionysia in March of 415 BC, where the aforementioned Trojan women of Euripides was performed, the envoys returned from Sicily with reports of great affluence in Segesta and 60 talents of uncoined silver as a gift, which was enough money to pay the crews of 60 triremes for a month. At this, the ecclesia took up the issue of intervention and the merits of Segesta's request, and the debate over the proposal quickly divided along factional lines. At the behest of Alcibiades, the Athenian people voted to send 60 ships with hoplite accompaniment at the beginning of the summer. A fragmentary inscription references these 60 ships in a vote on whether to send one general, who would presumably have been Alcibiades, or a plurality. Despite an overwhelming support in the Ecclesia for him and his opinion, the Athenians also voted against solely sending Alcibiades. Ultimately, the expedition was to be led by a trio of generals that included Alcibiades, but also Nicias and Lamachus. All three were appointed with full powers, meaning that they could decide matters for themselves without referring back to Athens. Thucydides says that Nicias was chosen as a general, even though he didn't want it, but offers no further detail regarding the debate. It's likely because he thought that the city had made a wrong decision, and that some were using this as a pretext for their aspirations of conquering all of Sicily. But despite his reluctance, it would have been considered unpatriotic and cowardly of him to turn it down. The Athenians, on the other hand, wanted him on this expedition because they hoped that his experience and cautious nature would serve as a check on Alcibiades' youthful and inexperienced rashness. 
but choosing only two generals who disagreed on all aspects of the campaign would have made for an impossible situation. And so the Athenians had selected Lamachus, who was a career soldier and an excellent military tactician, in the hopes that he could be counted on to make the right decisions to break the stalemate and balance the aggressive younger Alcibiades with the conservative older Nicias. Thucydides also says that their stated objectives were to help the Segestans against the Selenuntines, to restore Leontini if they could, and to settle matters in Sicily in whatever way they thought was most advantageous for Athens. This third objective was likely vague and purposefully so, as they did not wish to make their aim of conquering Sicily so explicit. However, to Thucydides' assertion, if the Athenians had wished to conquer Sicily, they would have agreed upon a much larger force than the one that was equal to that which they had sent during the first expedition a decade earlier. The decision to send the same number, at least at this point, indicates their limited intentions once again. Five days later, the Athenians held another meeting of the Ecclesia to discuss the quickest way of getting the fleet equipped and to vote on anything else logistically that the generals might need for the expedition. There was then an open debate, and this time Thucydides records what was said, or at least what he imagined was said since he was still in exile at this point. Nicias spoke first, and he hoped to turn the subject of the debate away from the ways and means of conducting the campaign, and instead to change their minds about the entire endeavor altogether, while there was still time. He was representative of a very dissatisfied anti-war faction, made up of older veterans who had seen the horrors of the war, and who were worried about the financial drain that this would cause. He, somewhat too presciently, begins by raising a series of different arguments that highlight the difficulties of the expedition. He argues against involvement in Sicily because he felt that they were being imprudent and making a terrible mistake by putting the city at an unnecessary risk and trying to add to the empire during a time of war, as Pericles' strategy had dictated not to do. He emphasizes the fragility of the current peace by reminding them of the dangers that still confront the Athenians at home as their enemies, Sparta, Corinth, Thebes, and others, were still hostile and would seize any opportunity to attack Athens once again. He also points out that their own allies in the Thracian region were still in revolt and had not yet been subdued, so it would make more sense for them to secure their present empire before seeking to expand and conquering another. He then goes on to say that Sicily is too far away to be permanently subdued, because even if somehow it were conquered, it would be impossible to rule, and would be such a drain on their resources that ultimately keeping possession of it would not last. He even reminds everyone that the Carthaginians, who at that point were more powerful than Athens, had been unable to defeat Syracuse and conquer Sicily. He then spends a considerable amount of energy trying to dismiss the idea that Syracuse posed a significant threat to Athens by saying that it would be just as foolish for the Syracusans to invade Attica as it is for the Athenians to invade Sicily. Without saying his name, he then launches a personal attack on the credibility of the main architect of the plan, that being Alcibiades. He reminds the Athenians that they have only recently suffered from plague and war, and so they should use the respite properly and not be swayed by young hotbloods whose leader is eager for command and desperate to cover the expenses of his private life. Basically, he claims that Alcibiades and his allies were inexperienced and self-aggrandizing young men eager to lead Athens into war for vainglory and their own financial profit. 
Nicias then calls on the older men to curb their enthusiasm and asserts that Athens should not help allies who could not help Athens in turn and who did not consult the Athenians when they went to war with their neighbors. Finally, he concludes that it would be best not to undertake the expedition at all. Then he asks the Protanus, who was the member of the Boule that served in the Ecclesia as its chairman, to show himself as a good citizen and put the question of vote for the second time on whether they should embark on this expedition. Alcibiades spoke next in response. He was representative of the younger generation of Athenians, who saw their city and navy emerge from the Arcadamian War relatively unscathed. Their treasury was filling up again, and they yearned for new adventures worthy of Athens' power and glory. And so Alcibiades enthusiastically advocated for the expedition, which Thucydides' comments on was because he was motivated by his ambition to gain wealth and glory to advance his own career. In fact, Thucydides here goes on a digression of sorts to discuss the character and habits of Alcibiades, of which he clearly wasn't a fan. And using historical hindsight, he commented that it was him and his nature which led to Athens' eventual ruin. Anyways, when Alcibiades spoke, he immediately responded to Nicias' attack on himself by pointing out the good that he has done for Athens as a private citizen and a public leader, and that he absolutely has earned the right to command the Sicilian expedition. He argues that the magnificence of his private life has added to Athens' prestige abroad, referring to his victory at the Olympic Games in the previous year that his arrogance should be accepted as it's properly based on his excellence, and that he deserves credit for having formed the recent coalition against Sparta. He then bids the Athenians to make use of his youthful energy and Nicias' good fortune together in joint command against the Sicilians. He rebuts Nicias' warnings about the expedition by stressing that the Sicilian Greeks are disunited politically and that Athenian diplomacy could win many of them over as well as the Sickles, who hate Syracuse and would support Athens in the war against their bitter enemies. He then claims that the situation in mainland Greece was under control as their enemies were demoralized, but more importantly, they offer no real threat to Athens without a fleet of their own. He then emphasizes the necessity of the Athenians supporting their allies, as they have given them their oath. Quote, that is how we have acquired our empire, and that is how others who have had empire acquired theirs by always coming early to the aid of those who called upon us, whether Greek or non-Greek, end quote. He then speaks of his larger goals for the expedition, saying that victory in Sicily would bring the Athenians control of all Greece and would bring riches to the city. In doing so, he likens the future expansion of the empire after they gain control of Sicily to what was accomplished after the Persian Wars. He then concludes with an argument that bears the stamp of the sophist's rhetorical tricks, which is not shocking as he was trained by them in his youth. He says that Athens, unlike other city-states, such as Sparta, is active by its very nature and therefore cannot afford to adopt a passive policy, as a long period of peace and inactivity would dull the skills and character that brought the city to its greatness. And so, he claims that to sit and enjoy what they have, as Nicias advises, would risk atrophy and the loss of their present empire. He concludes by urging the Athenians to unite in support of the Sicilian expedition, which even if it should fail to achieve a permanent conquest of the island, will at the very least injure Syracuse, increase Athens' prestige, and incur little risk of loss, since the overwhelming superiority of the Athenian fleet would guarantee the security of the naval expedition.
Alcibiades' speech was received enthusiastically by the vast majority of the Athenians in the Ecclesia, and they only grew even more anger for the campaign after hearing the Segestans and some Leontine exiles speak next. Their speeches weren't recorded by Thucydides, but they essentially reminded the Athenians of their oaths and implored them for assistance. Nicias realized that it would be useless once again for him to try and deter them with a cautious line of argument, so he tried a different, more deceptive approach to dampen their zeal and to scare the Athenians into abandoning the mission. With biting sarcasm, he came forward for a second speech. He begins by rejecting Alcibiades' image of a divided Sicily, by instead depicting the Greek cities of Sicily as powerful, wealthy, and politically stable, each with formidable militaries that would resist Athenian forces. He stresses Sicilian numerical advantage, their local grain to feed their armies, and their plentiful horses to serve in their cavalries, which the Athenians hadn't voted to send. He reiterates how difficult and dangerous the expedition's mission will be, and concludes that they must have overwhelming power in order for it to succeed. Then, he argues that because of the Sicilians' great strength and their far-off distance from Athens, the Athenian expedition must be even more powerful in order to obviate the need to send more forces later or to avoid a disgraceful withdrawal. And so, he demands that the expedition should be well-financed and provisioned, and the soldiers should be recruited from not only the Athenians, but from their allies throughout the empire, and include mercenary troops too. After he concludes his speech, a lesser-known demagogue named Demostratus who was one of the most active in spurring the Athenians towards the war, asked Nicias into specifying the excessive numbers that he deemed would guarantee safety and success. Hoping to dissuade them from approving such a massive commitment, Nicias provided an exaggerated estimate of the warships, supply vessels, and hoplites needed to undertake the expedition safely by proposing 100 Athenian triremes, plus those from their allies, and as many transports as they felt were necessary, no less than 5,000 hoplites, and a proportional number of lightly armed troops. Nicias believed that such large numbers would put the Athenians off from the undertaking, or if they must, they would only wish to make a brief show of force to aid their allies and return home at once, and not try to conquer the island. But his ploy backfired, and it blew up right in his face. Instead of the Athenians being put off by the massive cost and the scale of the armaments, his speech produced the opposite effect. The Athenians were now totally convinced that he had given good advice that an even larger force would make victory a foregone conclusion. And so, with such enthusiasm now from the majority, the few that still were opposed feared to appear unpatriotic by holding up their hands against it, and so they kept quiet their apprehensions. Then, Plutarch reports that Demostratus stood up and introduced a decree. He declared that in order to keep Nicias from making any further excuses, they should give the generals full and independent powers, both in council and in action, in order to determine the size of the expedition, and once again to do as they judged best for the interests of Athens. The Athenian people enthusiastically voted in favor of this decree, and so against his intentions, Nicias's misreading of the Ecclesia had altered the strategic situation, and his political maneuverings managed to convert an expedition of moderate size with limited goals and limited liability into a vast fleet with a risky, unlimited commitment. The Athenians then began to make preparations for the campaign by readying the ships and collecting the necessary money. Despite the promise of pay from Segesta, the previously mentioned inscription also makes reference to 3,000, possibly the setting aside of 3,000 talents for the campaign. Messages too were sent to the allies and enlistment rolls were drawn up at home. Thucydides describes the mood in Athens as one of feverish enthusiasm. 
Anyone who was not employed in fitting out the fleet congregated on street corners in Piraeus and throughout the Agora in eager conversation. Plutarch too discusses how despite opposition to the expedition from many of the priesthoods, an outburst of religious piety intensified this atmosphere of runaway patriotism. It was also at this time that the Temple of Hephaestus in the Athenian Agora was officially inaugurated. In addition, many Athenian oracle mongers brought forth older prophecies, which they claimed foreshadowed the destiny of Athens to conquer Sicily. And at one point, the sacred trireme Ammonius returned to Piraeus from Egypt, bearing a favorable prophecy from the oracle of Zeus Amun at Siwa, assuring that the Athenians would capture all of Syracuse. Because of these things, the Athenian people became more and more convinced that they had the gods' favor in their upcoming expedition. Still, some people did continue to oppose the venture, but in the open-air meetings of the Ecclesia, they knew that the majority would call them unpatriotic if they raised their hands and voted no, so they remained silent in public. Some secretly protested, though, such as the astronomer Meton, who, as we discussed in episode 86, was famous for devising the 19-year cycle of the official Athenian calendar. He secretly set a fire that destroyed his own house in the middle of the night, and then came forward and begged his fellow citizens to render his son exempt from service as a triarch, in view of this great misfortune that had been fallen upon his family. And so the Athenian people took pity on him and gave him his wish. Others, though, were a bit more fearless and protested in open. For example, Socrates indicated plainly that the expedition would be ruinous for the city. In addition, the women who were celebrating the Adonia, or the Festival of Adonis, which we discussed in episode 70, had placed little images of the god, as if he were laid out for burial, throughout the city and imitation funeral rites were held for them. These women then did the customary beating of the chest and wailing, associated with this rite, and the sadness that it provoked caused a general distress in the city for those who had feared the worst. However, with the vast majority of Athenians now fully committed to the expedition, there was nothing else for Nicias to do now but to commit himself to, and his love of lavish religious spectacles led him to work with Alcibiades in order to arrange a spectacular departure ceremony for their great fleet. But this was about the only thing that these two could and would work together on effectively, and the idea that Nicias' prudence would counter Alcibiades' impulsive nature was very wrong. Because from the beginning, just about everything that could have gone wrong did, though nothing now would be able to prevent the Athenians from undertaking the expedition. Still, despite the earlier signs that the gods were favoring their expedition to Sicily, three ominous happenings occurred right before the fleet would depart that would cause some to give pause. First, an unknown man leaped upon the altar of the twelve gods in the Agora and mutilated himself with a stone. Second, at Delphi, ravens attacked and pecked the image of the golden palladium, tearing it apart, which as we discussed in episode 39, was dedicated by the Athenians after the Persian War. Although the Athenians circulated the idea that this story was an invention of the Delphians at the instigation of the Syracusans, when the Pythia gave them an oracle ordering them to bring the priestess of Athena from Clazomenae to their city, they fetched the woman and they found her name to be Irene, or peace, and so the oracle had symbolically told them to keep the peace. But nothing could be more obvious and clear than what happened next. Days before the Sicilian expedition was supposed to sail out in June 415 BC, the city awoke to images of obscene sacrilege, as nearly all the Hermi across the city were vandalized and disfigured in some bizarre nocturnal escapade. A herma, or herm for short, is a square-cut stone pillar with the head of the messenger god Hermes on top and a big erect phallus on the front. 
They were located everywhere, guarding every public square and the outsides of every temple and private home, in order to bring luck and protection from danger to all. We discussed their importance more in episode 67. Apparently, a well-organized gang of men had passed through the city streets by night, knocking off their stone noses and their distinctive genitalia. This sparked a scandal of extraordinary proportions that spilled over from religion to politics. As Hermes was the god of travelers, the assault on his images was seen as an effort to prevent the planned expedition to Sicily. Cultural differences make it hard for us to fully understand why the Athenians reacted to this sacrilegious prank with utter terror, but the majority of the people both viewed the incident as a bad omen for the expedition and became convinced that a plot was afoot for a revolution to overthrow the democratic government. An instigation immediately was launched by the ecclesia to find the desecrators, and a decree was passed on the motion of a man named Cleonymus, offering a thousand drachmae reward and immunity to any witnesses who would offer any evidence, whether they were a citizen, a medic, or a slave. The boule established a commission of inquiry, which included eminent politicians. It eventually was widened to cover any other sacrilegious acts, and evidence was supplied of other statues being defaced by young men in a drunken frolic. Though many would be punished, as we will discuss, responsibility was never determined. It may have been the work of one or more socio-political clubs, known as atirii. These were drinking clubs composed of upper-class young men, often with oligarchic leanings, who involved themselves in a variety of social and political activities. As we discussed in episode 88, the Kaloi Kagathoi intensely disliked the new style of politics brought on by the demagogues, and many reacted in one of two ways. While some withdrew from public life, others made their philia, or friendships, tougher in their methods, and far more political. As a result, these philiae, which previously performed social functions and were visible to the public, became hetairii, or political clubs that met in secret. To the Democrats, these hetairii, of disaffected upper-class citizens, seemed sinister and potentially treasonous, as if they were secretly plotting the overthrow of the democracy. Not surprisingly, then, many of the elder politicians concluded that it was them who tried to sabotage the invasion. Regardless of who was to blame, it doesn't seem to be a coincidence, though, that the deed happened just before the expedition of Sicily, and there is no doubt that it was politically motivated. While some Athenians believe that the Syracusans or Corinthians were responsible, others believe that it was the work of pro-Spartan sympathizers in Athens, and even the historian Xenophon was suspected at one point. Whether or not foreigners did take part, it is completely plausible that those who plotted it had intended to prevent the attack on Sicily. They knew that the general Nicias was one of the most visibly pious men in Athens, and he believed strongly in omens and seers, and was famously cautious and opposed to the expedition. It's likely, then, that the conspirators had hoped to cause reason for him and the Athenians at large to think that the expedition was doomed from the start, and to call it off. However, the first person implicated not only didn't want to call off the expedition, but he was the architect behind it. According to Plutarch, a man named Androcles, who was a political enemy of Alcibiades, accused him and his friends of being the perpetrators during one meeting of the Ecclesia, right before the three generals were about to leave for Sicily. Andocides, in a speech titled On the Mysteries, claims that the man's name was Phonicus. Regardless, this man announced that during the course of his investigation, he discovered accusations that Alcibiades had staged a burlesque mocking of the Eleusinian mystery rites, violating their secrecy by parodying them in front of the uninitiated. 
As we discussed in episode 62, the Mysteries were a religious ceremony celebrated twice a year at Eleusis and Attica. Only those who had been solemnly initiated were permitted to share the secret of what was said and seen, and to profane these sacred rites by divulging their content or mocking them was considered to be a most grievous offense. Essentially, Alcibiades was said to have staged unauthorized celebrations of the mysteries in private houses, and supposedly a slave named Andromachus witnessed it all, and so he let it known that he could testify and corroborate the story if the ecclesia granted him immunity. Since Alcibiades naturally denied the charge at great length, the Britannes decided to clear the meeting of non-initiates and to fetch the slave at once. Under a grant of immunity, the slave testified that he and others had seen the mysteries performed in the house of a man named Polytion. He named Alcibiades and nine others as participants, as Alcibiades played the role of the high priest and his companions, Nicaeides and Meletus, were there in the role of mystae, or initiates while the rest were just observers. This profanation of the mysteries was just as scandalous as the Herm incident, if not more, and although these two had no connection with each other, it didn't take much to convince many Athenians that Alcibiades was the sort of irreverent individual who had set his drinking companions on such an enterprise, whether they belonged to a tyri or not. Although the details suggest that the desecrators carried out their attack over a wide area and in the course of a single night, these were not a few drunken revelers, but a large group of men acting in concert. Still, his enemies exploited the situation to make their case to the Athenian people that the mutilation of the Herms and the profanity of the mysteries were all a part of some large conspiracy to destroy the democracy. The alleged proofs were Alcibiades' general undemocratic disposition of his life and habits, but he knew that he had solid support among those bound for Sicily, especially the Argive and Mantinean mercenaries, who declared plainly that it was because of him that they were willing to make this long expedition across the sea, and so he immediately demanded a trial to deny these accusations, so that he might defend himself before the fleet left for Sicily. But no charges were formally filed, and he would sail to Sicily with this hanging over his head, as the Ecclesia reserved the right to call him back to Athens should evidence of his guilt appear. It's likely, though, that his enemies knew that the people would be too lenient in their judgment of him because they needed him for the expedition to Sicily, and that they wanted him gone as soon as possible from the city, so in his absence they could stir up ill will against him and he wouldn't be able to defend himself. Plus, his main source of support, the army, would be on the expedition in Sicily too, and so his supporters would be outnumbered when the votes were cast. We will return to the outcome of the Herms and Mystery scandals shortly. Meanwhile, the fleet that the Athenians had dispatched for Sicily was entirely out of proportion for the size or importance of its intended objective. After it was entirely assembled, including those who joined a bit later at Corsaira, it was a massive fleet of 134 triremes, 100 from Athens and 34 from Chios and other allies, two Rhodian pentaconters, and one horse transport that carried 30 horses, the only cavalry on the expedition. In addition, 130 cargo ships transported grain, supplies, and the necessary tools for building fortifications. In total, the fleet consisted of 267 vessels and over 30,000 men, including all of the crews for the triremes and other non-combatants, such as bakers, stonemasons, and carpenters, who were the type of people you would need to supplement the army for a long overseas expedition. There also were dozens of merchant vessels who accompanied the fleet voluntarily, as they seized this opportunity to have the imperial triremes be used for the protection of their ships heading west for trade. 
In total, the fighting force was 5,100 hoplites, 1,500 of which were Athenian, and 1,300 lightly armed troops of different kinds, including 480 archers, 80 of whom were from Crete, 700 slingers from Rhodes, and 120 lightly armed exiles from Megara. Athens also supplied 700 thetes to serve as marines on the triremes, with most of the rest coming from their subject allies, plus 750 mercenaries hired from Argos and Mantinea. The thetes were the poorest of the four property classes at Athens. Since they were unable to afford the cost of hoplite equipment, their principal military employment was to serve in the fleet as rowers. Thus, their role as marines here is quite anomalous. Perhaps they had been equipped and armed at the public expense. Diodorus reports that on the night before the fleet was set to embark, the three generals had a secret session with the Boule to discuss what disposition they should make of Sicily if they get control of the island. It was agreed by them that they would enslave the Selenuntians and Syracusans, while the other people would merely pay tribute to the Athenians annually. Thucydides doesn't mention this, and it seems unlikely to have happened, though, as it doesn't feel like a conversation Nicias would take part in. Regardless, on the following day, the Athenians and their allies planned to sail out, and the population of Athens, including citizens and medics alike, poured down to the Piraeus to watch its departure at daybreak. After saying goodbye to their family members, they boarded their ships. Thucydides says that the onlookers now became aware of the danger and magnitude of the expedition that they had voted on, but they were comforted by the unprecedented wealth and magnificence of the fleet. The Trierarchs had spent their own money, plus state funds, to make their vessels as fast, as strong, and as beautiful as possible. And the state treasury promised a drachma a day to each seaman to row in the lower two levels of a trireme, the thalamite and ziggite positions. This was the traditional fare for a day's labor. However, some Trierarchs also sought out more skilled and experienced rowers, called thranites, to man their ships, which wasn't unusual at all since swift confusion could descend upon novice rowers once an engagement commenced those with experience were highly sought after and rival navies competed fiercely for their services and so they demanded a higher fare than the standard drachma a day the athenian custom was to pay half in advance and the remainder upon completion of the voyage of course most expeditions occurred for only one sailing season and so usually the length of the contracts would be only for a few months Typically, with the rates for the standard rowers, the Thranites, and the rest of the crew, it cost about one talent per month to operate a trireme of about 200 men. A talent was about 6,000 drachmae. Therefore, Athens needed at least 600 talents, or 3,600,000 drachmae, to keep a fleet of 100 triremes operational for six months. Unfortunately for the Athenians, they would find out that this expedition will last much longer than that, and they would have to spend more money than anticipated. Regardless, Thucydides says this was the most expensive and glorious navy that any Greek city-state had launched until that time, and that it looked more like a display of power and wealth before the rest of the Greeks than an expedition against enemies. With the ships now manned, a trumpeteer sounded a signal to proclaim silence, and a herald led the crowd of people on the shoreline in the customary recitation of hymns, paeans, and prayers given before any sea journey. On every deck, bowls of wine were mixed, and both officers and marines poured libations to the gods of the sea in gold and silver goblets. When the hymns were all sung and the libations were all poured, the fleet put out to sea, sailing first in single file, and then racing one after another as far as Agina. From there, they circumnavigated the Peloponnese to Corsaira, where they rendezvoused with the rest of their northwestern allies. 
Then, three of the ships were sent ahead to Italy and Sicily in order to notify them that the Athenians were on their way, and to find out which of the cities would receive them. It was at this juncture, though, when the Athenians realized that such a gigantic force can be its own worst enemy, as they experienced much of the same logistical difficulties that Xerxes once had in the Persian Wars. Nowhere from Corsaira to Italy was their ports big enough to hold all of their ships or supply their hordes of men, so they had to take turns crossing the Ionian Sea. Most of the allies, with the grain transports and the smaller ships, crossed first, with orders to wait for them in southern Italy. They then divided the rest of the fleet into three squadrons, with a general at the head of each, and in successive waves, they crossed over to southern Italy, landing at the Iapian promontory near Taros. After their arrival, the Athenians met unanticipated resistance, as they received less support for supplies and bases to rest at from the city-states in Sicily and southern Italy than they had expected. Alarmed by their number of ships, some of those who weren't their allies, such as the key cities of Taros and Locris, refused to let them at all in their harbor in order to anchor and obtain drinking water. Even some of the places that were supposedly friendly to Athens kept their gates barred and their markets shut, providing only permission for the Athenian fleet to land and moor for the night. Obviously, they sailed right past the Dorian states of Metapontium and Heraclea, and were only accorded courtesy by Thurai and Croton. Quickly, the Athenians began to realize that their massive expedition should have been preceded by a serious effort to build up a league of allies pledged to join the attack on Syracuse. Their frustrations reached a climax at Regium, on the toe of the Italian peninsula at the Strait of Messana. The Regians were arguably their most important ally, and they had used their port as a naval base in their first expedition into Sicily. But this time, they also refused to join in on the expedition, despite Athenian pleas calling for them to help and assist their Leontine kinsmen against the Dorian Syracusans, as both cities were founded by Ionians from Halkis. The Regians, though, said that they would only join the Athenian cause if the rest of their Italian and Sicilian allies would as well. In the meantime, they declared neutrality and barred the Athenians from entry into their city, allowing them only to beach their ships and to make camp outside the city's walls near the precinct of Artemis, where a market was provided for them to buy their supplies. As we've mentioned before, Greek soldiers and sailors at this time were expected to purchase their food from local markets with their own money, which made prompt and adequate military pay quite important. For a city to offer a special market at a convenient and exterior location for foreign troops was a polite and presumably profitable amenity. However, for Regium, the driving factor here for the exterior market was that they wanted to keep Athens out of their urban markets and out of the city, but at the same time, they didn't want to turn their back on the Athenians entirely. It's likely that when Regium and their former allies had seen the massive size of the expedition, they somewhat rightfully so thought that the Athenians had come to conquer the West, and not just to help their allies, as they had claimed. It's likely that the force of just 60 Athenian ships that had originally been voted on would not have made the same impression. As it were, the Athenians then sought aid from one final ally, as they sent out once again the three triremes with envoys, this time to collect the promised money from Segesta. The Athenian generals awaited their return outside of Regium. Meanwhile, when news arrived at Syracuse about what was transpiring, the Syracusans responded exceptionally slow to the Athenian threat. Thucydides says that initially many did not believe the reports that a great navy was preparing to cross the sea to challenge them. This is hard to believe though since the Athenians had been to Sicily before and there's no way that the preparations of such a massive fleet was kept a secret. 
So it would have been monumental naivete for the Syracusans not to believe their intelligence reports. Regardless, Thucydides says that once they learned that the Athenians were at Corsaira, they took the warning serious enough to have a public discussion in their democratic assembly. In the lengthy debate that followed, Hermocrates, who was the dominant figure at the Congress of Gela, as we discussed in episode 97, stepped forward and insisted that the reports should be believed and that the Athenians were on their way to attack Syracuse. He tells his fellow Syracusans not to be fooled, although the Athenians may be coming over under the pretense of aiding Segesta in a minor war, they intend to conquer Syracuse and all of Sicily. But then he stresses the difficulties that the Athenians will face and the favorable position that Syracuse holds. He claims, rightfully so, that the great size of their expedition will frighten other Sicilians and induce them to unite with Syracuse against the Athenian invaders, or at the very least, to remain neutral. And he says that even without Syracuse in effort, logistical difficulties along the way may even defeat the Athenians. Still, they need to prepare, and he urges his fellow citizens to confirm old alliances and seek new ones in Sicily, Italy, and even their traditional enemy Carthage, and to send for help from Corinth and Sparta. They also should dispatch a fleet to the Iapkian promontory near Teros in southern Italy to confront the Athenians in the Ionian Sea before they reach Sicily. However, the Syracusan navy was no match for the Athenians, either in numbers or skill, so it's likely that this was just a ruse to force his countrymen to jump into action. He concludes by begging the Syracusans, even if they will not adopt his proposal, at least to make preparations to defend themselves. A demagogue named Athenagoras, who was very popular among the masses of Syracusan people, came forward and spoke next. He insists that men like Hermocrates were just trying to instill fear and spread alarm among the population and create conditions in which they could overthrow the democracy for their own political purposes. He argues that the Athenians were not really coming, since it would have been a foolish mistake for them to do so, while the Peloponnesians so close to them at home remain hostile. But even if a very large expedition would come from Athens, they would fail, as they would be shut up in a camp near their ships by the superior Sicilian cavalry. And so, if they were foolish enough to do so, they would be annihilated, and he reasons that the Athenians were too smart to risk such an attempt. He then once again warns the people to take caution against those who spread rumors in hopes of seizing power from the people, and in particular, he condemns the conspiracies that threaten Syracuse's government and advises his fellow citizens to remain vigilant against such plots. He then contrasts the justice and utility of democracy with the wickedness and unfairness of oligarchy. He asks the young oligarchs to give up their designs and again condemns those who spread rumors. He concludes by reinstating his belief that if Athens attacks them, the Syracusans would successfully defend themselves. Then, an unnamed Syracusan general stood up and stopped any other speakers from coming forward. But adding a few words of his own, he advocated for a middle stance that it would be best to prepare a defense in case Athens did appear and that they should send envoys to seek help and scouts to watch their approach. The assembly agreed on this, and the meeting came to an end. But it wasn't until they received reports that the Athenians had landed at Regium that they finally began to take measures and began to realize that war with Athens was inevitable. At that point, they sent envoys to the Sickles, put garrisons at posts in the countryside, reviewed the quantity and quality of the horses and arms in the city, and took other steps to prepare for a war that might be upon them at any moment. However, these measures still did not include the preparation of a fleet. 
Back at Regium, to make matters worse for the Athenians, when the envoys with the three triremes returned from Segesta, they learned that the Segestans had duped those who had been sent previously into believing that their city was rich, when in fact it was poor. The Segestans had taken the envoys to the Temple of Aphrodite at Eryx, and showed them the treasures there, and they also privately entertained them with lavish dinners, and seemingly endless displays of gold and silver vessels. However, the Segestans had only a single set of expensive cups, bowls, wine ladles, and plates, and these were acquired from their neighboring Greek and Punic cities. And so, this glittering table service was secretly passed from house to house, always arriving before the Athenian envoys did, for their next diplomatic dinner. The ruse had convinced them into thinking that even ordinary Segestans had huge fortunes, as everyone they came across had such lavish tableware. But not only did the Segestans not have the resources that they had claimed to have, they were only able to promise 30 additional talents of silver towards the war effort, which was barely enough to pay the crews of their massive fleet for 7 or 8 days. Although Nicias was not surprised, his colleagues were taken aback by this revelation and were appalled at their deceit. So now that they had failed to win allies in northern Sicily and southern Italy, and they did not have the funds they had expected, the three Athenian generals were compelled to reconsider their aims and strategy, but they were unable to agree on a plan of action. Nicias proposed a narrowly circumscribed expedition, as he was determined to stick to the official objectives. He wanted to take the fleet and head for Selenus, where they would settle its quarrel with Segesta, either by force or by persuasion. If the opportunity arose, they would then find some quick way to help Leontini or bring over some of the other cities. But in doing so, he believed that they should not endanger the state by spending so much of their own resources. Afterwards, the fleet could sail around the island in a ceremonious parade to display Athenian naval power, and then they should consider returning home. This gives insight into Nicias' cautious nature and his dislike of the entire Sicilian campaign, which he essentially was forced into. Alcibiades, though, was appalled at the timidity and lack of enterprise of Nicias' plan, and so he dismissed it as disgraceful. He believed that such a large force should achieve something worthy of note, and more personally, if he returned home having accomplished nothing, it would negatively affect his prestige. Instead, he preferred to use diplomacy to build up alliances with other Greek and non-Greek Sicilian cities who could provide food and troops, and then they could proceed against Syracuse and Selenus, unless the Selenuntians would come to terms with Segesta and Syracuse would restore the Leontines to their homeland. In particular, he believed that the Athenians needed to win over the cities of Messana and Regium on the Straits of Messana because it was the gateway to Sicily and would make an excellent base for their army and navy. Alcibiades' plan had merit in its aim to acquire more allies and strengthen their forces, and in its recognition of the real aim of the expedition, but the element of surprise, so vital in warfare, would be lost. Clearly, Alcibiades' plan was influenced by political considerations. The use of diplomacy would put his particular skills to the forefront, and with the charge still hanging over his head, he would avoid any potential military defeat that collectively would result in the ruin of his political career. Lamachus arguably had the soundest plan, and Thucydides implicitly agreed, which is not surprising because he was arguably the best military tactician among the three generals. His plan involved the element of surprise, and was shaped by the current military situation, and not influenced by politics. He believed that a victory in battle against Syracuse would be far more successful than diplomacy in winning over allies to the Athenian cause, and so he proposed an immediate attack on Syracuse itself by land and by sea before the city could fully mobilize itself and get its defenses in order, while the people were still in a relative panic. He suggested that they establish Megarahablia as their naval base, 
Although it had been deserted for decades, and so it had neither farms nor markets, and therefore could not provide any supplies, it had a good harbor and was close to Syracuse. He believed that a swift Athenian landing there would trap many Syracusans and their goods outside the walls, so that the Athenians could seize their farms and use their supplies. The Syracusans had been taken by surprise when the Athenians arrived at Regium, and were at the earliest stages of getting their defenses in order, and they hadn't fought a major naval battle in decades, and would be pitted against the best and largest navy in the Greek world. Best case scenario, he believed that they might surrender without a fight, but failing that, he would square them up in a hoplite battle in front of their walls. However, the Athenians lacked cavalry, and the Syracusans were well supplied in these. So if the assault did not achieve immediate success, there would be problems. Still, if his plan had been implemented, it might have achieved success. But his plan had no chance of being adopted, as it was the furthest thing from Nicias' wishes, and Alcibiades would hear of no plan other than his own. So both Nicias and Alcibiades vetoed Lamachus's plan, and without support for his proposal, he was forced to fall behind one of the other two generals to break the deadlock. Since he was unwilling to accept Nicias' plan of inaction, he therefore chose Alcibiades' plan of winning new allies through diplomacy. Their first plan of action was to find a large, secure, and convenient base for the Athenian forces, to launch both diplomatic missions and naval expeditions. With Regium turning them down, Alcibiades looked to Masana, so he sailed in his own vessel eastwards across the strait. He proposed an alliance to the Masonians, but they too prohibited the Athenians from entering their town, offering only to provide a market as the Regians had done. So he left Masana begrudgingly, and upon his return, the three generals were forced to look elsewhere. Leaving behind the rest of their ships at Regium, they led 60 of their triremes southwards along the coast towards Naxos and Catania at the foothills of Mount Etna. Although Alcibiades' powers of persuasion also failed to win over Catania, which was under the control of a pro-Syracusan faction, the Athenians were well received by the Naxians, who were old enemies of Syracuse. They then biovacked down the Tereus River and established a temporary camp near Leontini, and from there they sailed back out the river and led the 60 ships in a single file line southwards towards Syracuse itself in order to announce their presence and to survey its harbor and landscape. The nucleus of the ancient city of Syracuse was the small island of Ortigia, chosen for its two natural harbors, the little harbor to the north and the great harbor to the southwest. But the community quickly spread to the mainland, and both settlements were linked by a man-made causeway. When the Athenians reached Syracuse in territory, the ten leading triremes sailed into the great harbor and stopped just within the distance of the city's walls. They were able to do this because the Syracusans at that point had no fleet at anchor in their harbor. A herald on the leading Athenian ship then proclaimed that they had come to restore freedom to the Leontines and their other Sicilian allies. In what amounted to an ultimatum, he let it be known that all those in Syracuse who favored their cause should leave the city and join the Athenians, which effectively was a declaration of war. No one from the city would answer the herald's call, though. Even so, the Athenians were able to determine that Syracuse and naval capabilities were inferior to theirs and that their defenses were not prepared to withstand a siege. Nonetheless, the sheer scale of the place was overwhelming. The Great Harbor was an irregular oval more than two miles long and one mile wide. The western shore was full of reedy wetlands and rocky flats shelved into the water. The only good location to moor was the well-protected dockyards. Having surveyed the enemy's stronghold, the Athenian generals led the fleet northwards back to Catania. 
Although the Catanians once again refused to receive them into their city, they invited the generals to speak before their assembly. So while Alcibiades was speaking to the Catanian people, the Athenian soldiers were able to break down a badly walled-up postern gate without being observed. The rest of the forces flooded into the city, and as soon as the pro-Syracusan party saw the army inside, they became frightened and withdrew. The rest of the Catanians immediately voted for an alliance with the Athenians, and invited them to bring the rest of their forces down from Regium. Once they arrived, they began to build a camp. And so the Athenians, through trickery, were able to secure Catania as a base of operations on their second attempt. Basically, the Sicilian cities on the Athenian side were Naxos, Catania, and Segesta. Those on the Syracusan side were Himera, Selenus, and Gela. And the three most powerful neutral states in Sicily were Messana, Camarina, and Acragas, while all cities in southern Italy remained neutral. In addition, the cities of the Sickles all initially remained neutral, as they awaited to see how the cards fell before choosing a side. At one point, word came from Camarina that if the Athenians came to the city, it would join the Athenian cause, and that the Syracusans finally were manning a fleet, now that they saw the Athenians in their harbor. The Athenians, accordingly, sailed along the shore with all of their triremes back to Syracuse to investigate, but when they arrived, they found this report to be false, as a fleet was still not being manned by the Syracusans, and so they continued south and then went west along the coast of Camarina to follow up there. They stopped at the beach outside the city and sent a herald to the people announcing their arrival. But much to their surprise, they refused to receive them. And so, realizing that they had received faulty intelligence on both accounts, the Athenians sailed back to Catania. But not wanting their effort to be a complete waste, they landed on the coastline and raided Syracuse and territory along the way. As they withdrew, though, a few lightly armed troops were killed by Syracuse and cavalry. Upon returning to Catania, Alcibiades found that he wouldn't even get to spend the whole year in Sicily, as he was being summoned back to Athens to stand trial for his supposed role in the Herm and the Mysteries affairs. The inquiry into these cases had become so rabid, as so many Athenians feared that he was attempting to establish a tyranny. It's here in the narrative where Thucydides goes into a rare digression to recount the story of the oppressive nature of the tyranny of the Pisistridids and how it came to an end, as we discussed in episode 26. After his departure from Athens, Alcibiades' political enemies had conducted a very vigorous smear campaign against him that effectively amounted to a witch hunt. Two of the most fervent members of the Commission of Inquiry were Pisander and Charicles. They were convinced that the Herm and the Mysteries affairs were not the work of a small group of criminals, but were connected to an oligarchic plot to overthrow the democratic government. And so they grew savage in their search for the guilty. They managed to convince the Athenians that all of those who were accused of any complicity whatsoever should be cast into prison without a trial. Most of the information about this event comes from Plutarch's Life of Alcibiades and Andocides' On the Mysteries. Following the previously mentioned accusations lodged by Androcles and a slave named Andromachus, a medic named Teucris had quietly fled to Megara. He only promised to return to Athens if he was granted immunity by the Boule for his testimony as he claimed that he had participated in the parody of the mysteries and could identify the perpetrators of the mutilation of the Herms. The Boulet agreed to his demands, and messengers were sent to Megara to fetch him. When he arrived back at Athens, under immunity he named eleven others who took part of the parody with him, and the eighteen men, including Meletus, which he accused of attacking the statues. Alcibiades did not appear on any of these two lists, though. All of those accused fled the city, except for one, a man named Polystratus, who was arrested and executed. 
But Pysander and Charicles were convinced that this didn't include all of those involved, and so they continued their inquiry to uncover the missing oligarchic plotters. Next, a man named Diocleides came before the boule, claiming that he knew who had mutilated the Herms. He told them that on the day in question, he arose at an early hour in order to fetch the earnings of a slave of his at Larium. During his journey, under the light of the moon, he saw about 300 conspirators gathered in the orchestra of the Theater of Dionysus on the southern slope of the Acropolis. He quickly hid in the shadows and crouched between a column and the pedestal of a bronze statue. From this vantage point, under the moonlight, he was able to recognize the faces of many of the men. Then he continued to Larium, and when he returned the next morning and heard what happened to the Herms, he concluded that these men were the culprits. When he found that there was a commission of inquiry and a reward for information, he went to those whose faces he remembered and attempted to extort a higher sum from them. They agreed to give him two talents of silver the following month. But since their promised bribes were never given, he decided to reveal the truth to the boule. He then routed out 42 of them, including two council members named Mantethius and Apsathion, who were present at that very meeting, as well as several rich noblemen. Despite the fact that there was no moon at all the night that the deed was done, at least according to Plutarch, these accusations fueled the fear of a general oligarchic plot against the Athenian democracy, which was no doubt egged on by Pysander and Chericles. So great was the ensuing panic in the boule that Pysander rose and moved a decree to suspend a law which forbid the torture of Athenian citizens in order to obtain their testimony. The members of the boule broke into shouts of approval, and so the 42 suspects were ordered to be put on the torture rack in the hope of obtaining swift confessions. But the two accused boule members managed to take sanctuary on the council chamber's hearth, where they begged their fellow councillors to be allowed to stand trial rather than being tortured, and likely due to their governmental positions, they were granted this request. But once they walked out of the boule, they immediately leapt on horseback and fled the city for Boeotia. A Boeotian army subsequently appeared on the Athenian border, for an unspecified reason, and at the same time, a small Spartan force advanced as far as the Isthmus. And so, the Athenians were now convinced that the Boeotians and Spartans had come by prior arrangement from these two Boule members to spark a revolution. Those accused by Diocleides were immediately arrested, and that night, the city implemented extraordinary measures. The Boule moved from the Agora up to the Acropolis for safety, and as a precaution, the rest of the Athenian citizens put on their armor and slept in the Temple of Theseus. Its location is unknown, though Pausania says it laid in the southeast of the Agora. Similarly, those in Piraeus armed themselves and moved to their Agora. One of those accused by Diocleides was a famous Athenian orator named Andocides, as well as his father and nine other relatives. He eventually agreed to testify, and his account is encapsulated in his oration, titled On the Mysteries, which has given us many of the details that we have mentioned. Although in his speech he claimed that he was innocent and that Diocleides was trying to ruin his family, he was induced by a fellow prisoner, his cousin, to turn state's evidence in order to gain immunity and save himself. Because in all likelihood, because he was a wealthy nobleman, and with the fervor raging in the city, the people would have found him guilty. So it was better for him to save his life by making a false confession of a crime than to die a shameful death under a false charge of that crime. So he took his cousin's advice, and after securing a grant of immunity from punishment, he confessed that he and the rest of his attiria, or political friends, were responsible for the mutilation of the Herms, under the leadership of two men named Euphilitus and Miletus. 
Andocides told the Inquisitors that these two men suggested the idea at a drinking party, and despite his opposition to it, they put the plan into motion. He then provided a list of all of those involved, all of whom also appeared on the list of Teucris, but not on that of Diocleides. With the exception of four men who fled immediately, the rest were already dead. As proof of his veracity, Andocides says that every single herm in Athens had been destroyed, except for the one that stood in front of his house, because each man was responsible to knock over their own herm, plus the rest that they did together, and he was the only one who had agreed that didn't take part in the mutilation. He also insisted that he would hand his slave over to be tortured to prove that he was home at the time in question. And so they agreed to this and arrested the women slaves in Andocides' home. Once they extracted the corroborating information from them, they summoned Diocleides for further questioning. He admitted at once that his testimony was false and begged to be forgiven and that he might be pardoned if he disclosed who had induced him to fabricate such a story. He claimed that he had acted on the instructions of Alcibiades' cousin, who confusingly was also named Alcibiades, and another man named Amiantus, both of whom had already fled Athens. After hearing this, those implicated by his perjured testimony were cleared, including Andocides' relatives, who were awaiting execution, and those who fled that were guilty were officially exiled in abstentia. For his part, though, in causing the deaths of innocent men, Diocleides was not pardoned, and he was executed. The Athenians now were convinced that the guilt of the Herm scandal was now determined, and were comforted that it was only a small number of men, and not a large conspiracy against the government. The matter of the profanation of the sacred Eleusinian mysteries, though, still remained unsolved, so the Inquisition was not done yet. Also, at about the same time, a group of friends of Alcibiades at Argos were suspected of planning a coup to overthrow their democracy. So in order to reassure the Argives that they weren't complicit, the Athenian people chose to give back those pro-Spartan Argive hostages that Alcibiades had deposited in the various islands of the empire the previous year. When they were handed over to the Argive people, they subsequently were put to death. In short, despite Alcibiades' name not being on any of Teucer's lists, as told by Andocides, suspicion of his involvement didn't die down, and his connection to the Argive plotters only added fuel to their fire. Another accusation against him soon followed, stating that he, his uncle Axiochus, and his friend Adamitus, performed the profanation of the mysteries in the house of a nobleman named Charmides. Once again, his enemies pounced on this, and without him in the city, public opinion began to turn further against him. Finally, Thessalus, who was the son of Cimon, lodged formal charges against him of sacrilege for the mimicking of the mysteries to his companions and thus committing a crime against the goddesses of Eleusis, Demeter, and Persephone. Thessalus's lineage and noble family lent weight to the charge, and so the matter was now serious enough that the Boule voted to send out the Salaminia, which was one of Athens' two official state triremes, along with the Paralis, that were used on sacred embassies and official business. It was tasked with bringing back to Athens him and several other members of the expedition who had been accused in order to stand trial for both the destruction of the Herms and for profaning the mysteries. But they were not to arrest them in order to avoid agitating the army, especially the Mantinean and Argive mercenaries who had joined only on account of Alcibiades. Plutarch believes that he could have started a mutiny if he had wished, but the disappointing results of the expedition to date may have undermined his popularity even among the army, so he submitted quietly. Since he was not under arrest, he was permitted to follow the Salaminia in his own trireme, but he must have learned along the way the nature of the situation in Athens, and so when they stopped to port at Thurai in southern Italy, he and a few of his companions chose to escape inland, 
The crew of the Salaminia stayed some time looking for them, but once they finally departed back to Athens, Alcibiades jumped ships and made his way to Kyllene in Elis in the Peloponnese. A sentence of death was passed on him and his companions in Amstentia, while the others who were brought back to Athens were executed. Although we can't be entirely sure, Alcibiades was probably innocent, but chose to ran because he was worried about getting a fair trial. Regardless, his property was confiscated, his name was inscribed on a stella of disgrace that was erected on the Acropolis, and a bounty of a talent of silver was promised to whoever killed him. Another decree ordered that his name, and likely those who also were guilty, were to be publicly cursed by the Eleusinian priests and priestesses. According to Plutarch, when he learned of his sentence, he supposedly said, quote, I shall show them that I am still alive, end quote. From Ellis, he soon obtained passage to Sparta upon their invitation, which was one of the few safe places for an Athenian outlaw. There, he began to set about advising Athens' enemy of the best ways to defeat them. On the next episode, we will see how Nicias and Lamachus respond now that Alcibiades is no longer on their side. But just as the Athenians managed to get the upper hand initially, a series of tactical blunders by Nicias and the untimely death of Lamachus erase all of the progress that had been made. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 100, A Sicilian Stalemate.